Hallelujah. Well, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll start there this morning. We have been teaching a series on God and miracles. And uh, we want to continue along those lines. But this morning I want to do something a little bit different, a little, uh, well, what I believe will be special. I know the Lord's got some good things in store for us this morning. Some things that he's already revealed to me that he is going to do in our midst. But I want to talk to you about the miracle of communion. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is writing to the church. I'll start reading in verse uh, 23. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. 23. Paul said, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Now, I want to stop there for just a moment and make notice of one thing. Paul is saying that it's up to you. You choose whether or not to believe it or, or, or reject it. But Paul is saying, Jesus told me this, and I've told you. Now, what he's going to relate to uh, or relate is the story of Jesus uh, and the, the, what we know of, what the church world knows of as the Last Supper, the Passover meal that Jesus partook of with his disciples the same night that he was betrayed and, and uh, preparations began and everything was set into motion for him to go to the cross. Now, the question is, why would Jesus reveal that to Paul? At the time Paul writes this, at least two of the Gospels have been written. And most of the Gospels, at least the three Gospels that refer to the Last Supper, um, it's possible that all three of those have been written. John's the only one that really doesn't tell us too much. And and I think the reason for that is because he wrote so much later than the others. He knew the story was already there. So why would Jesus feel the need to reveal something to Paul? If not for the information that was designated and determined for the church to have. What I want to get across to you folks is that this is something that Jesus considered important enough for the church, knowing full well that Paul would write these things and relate them to the church. Jesus considered this important enough to have a New Testament witness for how communion is supposed to work in the church. And I would submit to you that if it worked, well, let me say it this way. If people gave attention to it the way that Paul is, in, is instructed by the Lord to, to direct it to us, the church world, things in the church would be a lot different. Paul said, that which I received of the Lord. That just fascinates me. That Jesus stopped and told him. Now, here's how it worked at the Last Supper. Here's how it worked on that last Passover that I was with my disciples. That which I received of the Lord I have delivered unto you. That the same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat. Now remember, this is Jesus relating. This is not Paul relating the gospel accounts. This is Jesus telling him specifically, Here's what I did. And notice what Jesus identifies. There's a lot of information that the gospels tell us that uh, things that went on surrounding the Last Supper that's not included here. And we have to assume that Jesus didn't include that information. Of course, Jesus knew that information was out from the Gospels, but Jesus is saying, this is what I want you to know about this. So it's important for us to know. The same night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Notice the last phrase, this do in remembrance of me. So he wants this to continue. This is not a historical fact. This is Jesus relating what happened and what he said so that it would continue. 
Verse 25, and after the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. He wants this to continue. And he doesn't tell us how often to continue it. He just says, as often as you do it, make sure you do it in remembrance of me. So Jesus is saying the communion elements represent his body and his blood, right? Jesus is saying that on the Passover, he related to his disciples that the Passover was about him, right? And he said, as often as you do this. Now, what about the Jews? The Jews were supposed to do it once a year. So I'm certain that the disciples, when they heard Jesus say, say, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. I'm certain that they're thinking, okay, well, Passover changes now every year. Because now we're supposed to focus back on Jesus and not just on what happened in Egypt. Now, let's talk about what happened in Egypt. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 12. Where did the Passover come from? Israel has been captives for 400 years, slaves to Egypt. God tells Moses, go tell tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh will not agree to that. And so God starts pouring out plagues upon the people of Egypt. The first couple of plagues affect Israel as well. But about the third one, Israel is separated so that they're not affected. This just comes upon the Egyptians and and so forth. And every one of these first nine plagues are a judgment upon God, uh, God's judgment upon one of the gods of Egypt. And finally, they get to the 10th one. And God tells Moses, okay, this is the last one. So we need to make special preparation. So the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying, this is Exodus 12, 1. This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. I want you to notice something. Passover changed the calendar. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak unto all the congregation of Israel saying in the 10th day of the month, they shall take unto them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make count, make your count for the lamb. I want you to notice he's saying it's very important that everybody partake of the lamb and that nothing is left over. The lamb is significant. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, he shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it up until the 14th day. That's five days. I'm sorry, that's three days. From day 10 to day 14, there's three days in between, which refers to Jesus and the time between his burial and his resurrection. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. Now, if the blood is the important thing, why is he so insistent on the manner in which things are eaten and that nothing is left. It's not just the blood. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all, that means boiled, with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the puritanance thereof, and you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remains of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. Now, folks, if Jesus is saying the Passover is about me, what's the significance about nothing left over? God doesn't want one benefit that Jesus procured for you through his sacrifice on the cross to be left 
untaken. He's very specific about that. Now, the church world ought to wake up to that. Because there's a lot of them in the church world that argues about, well, this belongs to us and that doesn't belong to us. God's attitude is, it all belongs to you. And he's very concerned about those who leave it unpartaken of. That's bad English, but I don't know how to say it. Okay. Excuse me a minute. My singers are leaving their trash up here. Was that you? You did that because of the joke that I made that didn't work, didn't you? Okay. And you shall let nothing, verse 10 again, and you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it. With your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Please notice that this is not a leisurely meal. This is something that you're supposed to partake of with a purpose and ready to move. This signifies the work that God has planned for you in your life. This is not about sitting back and partaking of the blessings of God and eating bonbons for the rest of your life. This is about using the things that God has provided for you through the sacrifice of Jesus to accomplish his will and plan and purpose for you. Can you see that? Then he tells why, verse 12, For I will pass to the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, who I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be unto you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance for a little while, forever, forever. Now, folks, can I ask you a question? If the blood is what saves them, Why is the lamb important? If the blood's the issue, what if somebody tried to cheat? What if somebody said, well, you know, I really don't like lamb. And so what I'll do is I'll just put the the blood on the doorpost and I just won't eat any. That's okay for the rest of the family, but I'll just, you know, pick around the edges and The lamb is for a purpose, not just the provision of blood, but the lamb, the flesh of the lamb itself is for a purpose, is it not? Well, what purpose is it? Well, the Bible goes on to say that the next thing that happens, and this is according to the Jewish feast as I understand it, the next day after Passover starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it talks about how for seven days you're supposed to search out and make sure that there's no leaven in the houses and stuff. Of course, they didn't have houses and they leave the next day. So this is something that God is talking about for the future and the way that it's supposed to be um, celebrated from that point forward after Israel comes into the promised land and, and so forth. That signifies to us that we should live a life free from sin. Leaven is always a type of sin. 
And in fact, if we went back and looked at the context of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 about the, uh, the Passover, the communion elements and so forth, he's talking about the sin that's in the, in the church. He tells them to purge out the leaven from their lives. Now, what benefit or what does this produce in the lives of Israel? What's the purpose for this? Well, the Bible says in Psalm 105, verse 37, it says, looking back, the psalmist looking back to to God's deliverance for Israel from Egypt, he said, he brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble person among them. Now, turn with me over to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. Between the 12th and the 15th chapters, Israel has departed from Egypt. Then Pharaoh realizes he's made a mistake and let them go. He wants to kill them now. And so he comes out and brings his army out against them. They come to the Red Sea and God stops Egypt from attacking them by the pillar of fire. And the waters part, Moses parts the waters and Israel goes over on dry ground. And when Pharaoh and his chariots, the armies chase after them, then the waters come back together again and drown them and, and Israel is delivered from the greatest fighting force that exists on the face of the earth at that time. Never fired a shot. Never threw a spear. Never shot an arrow. The greatest army on the face of the earth was destroyed by God's hand. Folks, when you look at things that are going on in the world and they talk about nuclear Iran and Saudi Arabia and Egypt and everybody else starting up a nuclear war and all this kind of stuff or a nuclear arms race and that kind of stuff, don't worry. You know how the Bible says God destroys all that stuff at the end? With hail. Now, you can research this out. It's very, it's very widely, well, it's, it's common knowledge among those that know this kind of stuff. With all the smart bombs and all the smart technology and everything else that they do with guidance systems and all that kind of stuff that can pinpoint and, and satellites that can see your license plate from, you know, a gazillion miles above the earth and all this kind of stuff, the one thing that nuclear weapons can't fly through is hail. So when all this stuff happens at the end and everybody comes against Israel, God just makes it hail. And all the billions and billions and billions and billions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars that have gone into research and development and all that kind of stuff for man to prove himself so smart and so well developed and militarily capable and stuff is destroyed in an instant. I think it's good to keep things in in perspective. When the world talks about what they're going to do and what they can do and all this kind of stuff, just realize God could breathe and they're done. So God delivers Israel from the Red Sea. Moses sings a song of gratitude. All the children of Israel are just amazed at the power of their God. Man, did we sign on to the right side of this issue. Then they come to a place, a couple of days later, they come to a place where there's no water. Let me clarify that. There is water, but it's it's bitter. It's not palatable for them. It's not able, and, and some translations say it's poisonous water. We don't know, but at any rate, there's, uh, uh, there's a problem with the water and the people won't drink it. So God gives Moses instruction to take a tree and cast the tree into the waters and it purifies the waters. It makes the waters drinkable. Now, God says as a result of purifying the waters, God said in first, uh, what is this, Exodus 15, verse 26, God said to Israel, if thou will hit, hearken diligently 
to the voice of the Lord thy God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments. Keep his word, in other words. I will put, I'm reading from the King James, keep all of his statutes. I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now, there's several things I need to say about this verse of Scripture, but let me take first things first. There is one personal pronoun in verse 26 in the original Hebrew, and that's at the end where God says, I am the Lord that healeth thee. There is no personal pronoun I will put or I have brought. There is no personal pronoun for those words that are translated or those two eyes that are translated in the King James. The, the verbs are the same. That's translated, I will put and I have brought. And they both mean to take hold. The literal rendering of this verse of scripture is, if you'll keep my commandments and walk in my statutes, none of the diseases will take hold upon thee, which have taken hold upon the Egyptians, for or because I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now the question is, why isn't it translated like that? I wish it was. It would change a lot of people's idea and attitude about what God does and what God doesn't do where sickness and disease is concerned. But translations are always based on two things, and that is, number one, the translator's knowledge of the language, and number two, the translator's understanding of God. Bible translations, no matter how well-intentioned they may be, are always going to depend on those two things. Well, I have to conclude that the translator's understanding of God was such that they thought that God made people sick and God healed them when he wanted to. The problem is that that disavows and contradicts what the Bible says. The Bible says God doesn't change. That means he can't be on the sickness side of the issue one time and the healing side of the issue the other time. He's on one side of the street and not both. So whichever way you want to believe he is, he is one and only one way. He said himself, I am the Lord, I change not. That would mean he doesn't change on his attitude towards sickness and disease. He doesn't change on his actions towards sickness and disease or any other issue that exists. He is one and only one way. Now, the language itself says that God is the healer and the fact that he is the Lord that healeth thee keeps the diseases of the world from attaching itself to his people. Now, that's what the translation says. I wish the translators had been a little bit more clear when they translated it, but we have what we have. But now the question is this. Why is God identifying himself to the people? Let me take a minute and explain a couple of things. There are two main words or names that are used for, for, for God in the Old Testament. And God identifies them both. God's the one that gave himself these two names. The first is God, translated God, and it's the word Hebrew word Elohim. We see that beginning in Genesis chapter 1, and God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Later on in the chapter it says, uh, or later on in, the, in Genesis it says, And Elohim said, Let us make man in our own image. And let him have dominion over the works of our hands. Now this is, we have this record because God is telling Moses this is how it works. So God is saying I'm God. Now the word Elohim literally means supreme in the sense of creator. He's saying the creator said let there be light. The creator created the universe. The heavens and the earth. The creator did that. Now the other name that God gives himself is translated Lord throughout the Old Testament. And it's the word Jehovah, or I guess you say in Hebrew, Yahweh. Now, Yahweh means, or Jehovah means, the self-existent one. 
Now, here's why this is important. Moses stood before God talking to him in the burning bush and said, when I go to Pharaoh, who am I supposed to tell him sent me? Which means Moses didn't know who God was. He didn't even know his name. And God identifies himself. He says, tell Pharaoh, I am that I am has sent me. Now, folks, I would submit to you that's not much of a description. By that, I mean it tells us a lot once you get to know who God is. There's a lot of meaning in that phrase. But to Pharaoh, you serve a God called I am that I am. What kind of God gives himself a name like that? But there's, a, there's an important meaning here. And that is the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, is the self-existent one who reveals himself to man. And that's what God is telling Moses. He's saying, I will be whatever I need to be. So here where it says in Exodus fifteen twenty six, the Lord, Jehovah, says, if you keep my commandments and watch in my statutes, none of the diseases will take hold upon you that have taken hold of the Egyptians, for I am Jehovah that healeth thee. Now, the word healeth is the word Rapha. Rapha. I am the Lord that healeth thee. I am Jehovah Rapha. This is God who is identifying himself or revealing himself to man. Now, folks, please understand this. This is so important. God could be in the heavens and stay secret. God didn't have to speak to man. He didn't have to make a covenant with man. He certainly didn't have to send his son. He didn't have to give him his word, give man his, uh, the word. He didn't have to do anything. But all of those things point to one and only one thing, and that is God is trying, attempting, working diligently to reveal himself to man. The creator of the universe, the self-existent one, reveals himself. Now, there are seven names, seven compound names, Jehovah something, throughout the Old Testament where God reveals himself to mankind. And this is the first one, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that healeth thee. Now, every one of those seven names are completed or fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm not sure if I can go through all seven of of them without the list in front of me, but let me try. Jehovah, our peace. The Bible says that God made peace with mankind through the sacrifice of Jesus. The Lord, our presence. Well, the Bible says we've been made nigh or near or present with God through the blood of Jesus. The Lord, our shepherd. Jesus said himself, I am the good shepherd. Well, what does the good shepherd do, Jesus? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There's his sacrifice. The next one would be the Lord, our provider. Not only did God provide himself an offering by sending his son Jesus to die for mankind, but Jesus said, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you, meaning provision. Next is the Lord, our victor. The Bible says we have victory through the blood of Jesus. The next one is righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. How in the world can we have righteousness except by the blood of Jesus? God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And finally, the last one, did I cover them all? Was that six? The last one, the seventh one, is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, our healer. Now, why is it that the church world says all of the first six names are fulfilled in Jesus and through Jesus' sacrifice, but the seventh one, the Lord, our healer, just was for the Jews? 
when in fact the Bible says as specifically or even in some cases more specifically that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes, sacrifice, shedding of blood, we are healed. Why is that the one that the church, seems, the church world seems to cut out of the loop? God says specifically, if you walk in my words and keep my commandments, diseases, the diseases of the world won't take a hold of you, even though they'll take a hold of everybody else. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now this word Rapha, this word healeth, this translated healeth, is used 67 times in the Old Testament. Now it's not translated heal or healeth in every case. But in 63 of the 67 it is. Three times, the three times, three of the four that it's not is translated physician. The other one is translated thoroughly. But the time that it is translated thoroughly, it's in conjunction with another word that's translated healed. In other words, the law of the the Hebrew language, the way it works is when one word is used twice, and in this case, I think it's Exodus 21 something, it says Rapha Rapha. Now, the rule for the Hebrew language is this. When one word is used twice, it means an extremity or an extreme condition of whatever is being described. For example, there's a place in the Old Testament where the word reward is used. Reward, reward. And it's translated great reward. So here, in the one case, one of the four that is not translated anything regarding healing, but translated thoroughly, it means thoroughly or extremely, completely healed. In every case that this word Rapha is used in the Old Testament, it is is used regarding physical healing for the body or healing of the physical body. Now, some people will say, well, Jesus has fulfilled that through his sacrifice by healing us spiritually. Folks, according to the Bible, there is no such thing as spiritual healing. The Bible talks about a spiritual renewal. The Bible talks about a spiritual recreation. The Bible talks about being born again, but never does it talk about spiritually being healed. In fact, Jesus talked about the very thing where he said, you can't put new wine in old wineskins because it'll break and the wine will spill. He's talking about the spirit of man. The Bible is very specific. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah are very specific about talking, telling us what the new birth or being born again is like. It's taking the old dead spirit, spiritually dead spirit out of man and replacing it with a new spirit. And then God placing his spirit in man's new spirit. That's not being healed. That's not having the old spirit patched up. That's not talking about some amending of an old spirit. It talks about a recreation, a replacement, if you will. And some will say, well, this is talking about emotional healing. There's no such thing. Oh, but Pastor Mike, you're getting unscriptural now. Even Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, that I came to heal the brokenhearted. Folks, brokenhearted doesn't mean emotionally stumped or, or, or damaged. Brokenhearted means a breach in the spiritual order. Well, what is that talking about? It's talking about very simply the story of creation. God created the earth, made everything that was here on the earth, and then put man in the middle of it. Breathed the breath of life into man and put him in the middle of it. That means God joined man to himself as one spirit. His spirit was the source of his life. And for as long as he walked in relationship and fellowship with God, that was maintained. But once he sinned and obeyed Satan instead of what God said to do, that was broken. There's the breach in the spiritual order. 
When Jesus said, I am come, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and anointed me to heal the brokenhearted, he's talking about to repair that breach, that break in the spiritual order. And by his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, he made man one with himself through faith in his blood, faith in his sacrifice, to repair that breach in spirit, to repair that spiritual order. Now we are made the righteousness of God in him. It's not talking about emotional healing. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, the Lord has healed me of some of the terrible things that happened in my past. Thank God he does. And we use healing in a general sense in that way, but the Bible speaks specifically of that as being a transformation in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, a transformation that comes by the renewing of the mind. It's not a healing. It's a transformation. So in every case where the Bible talks about healing, it's talking about healing for the physical body. Whether we do or not, it does. So God said, if you keep my commandments and walk in my statutes, none of the diseases of the world or of Egypt will take a hold of you, even though it took a hold of the Egyptians and will take a hold of the world. For I am Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that healeth thee. Now, let me ask you a question. What does healing have to do with purifying water? Why would God identify himself as the healer of the body when all that happened was he made water pure? I mean, I'm glad God revealed himself, but it seems like a kind of a poor place to do that. Doesn't look like the power that was exhibited in the purification of the water really relates to the healing of the physical body in this case. Does it? So why is he referring to himself and identifying himself and revealing himself as the healing God when all he did was make water pure? What does that have to do with the man's physical body? Folks, I believe that it's saying that healing took place in the Passover that enabled the psalmist to look back in Psalm 105 verse 37 and say he brought them forth with silver and gold and not one feeble among them. The word feeble in verse uh, 37 of Psalm 105 means to be to to stumble it means to fall or it means to be overthrown so it says that when israel came out of egypt the day after the passover was partaken of they came out with silver and gold you remember the story how god told them to go to their neighbors and that didn't take long god changed their financial situation in a matter of minutes you get god's plan on things folks it doesn't take long to change your problem change your circumstance so they went to their neighbors and said, pay us. King James says, borrow. They didn't borrow. There was no intention to pay back. He said, pay us for all these years of being slaves. We're, we never were slaves to begin with, but you made us slaves. So now pay us for our service. And the people unloaded everything they had. The Bible says they spoiled the Egyptians. So they came forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble among them. Not one that was weak, not one that was stumbling, not one that fell, not one that was overthrown. Now, folks, you know as well as I do that if the Bible is specific, if the Bible is the inspired word of God, if the Holy Ghost gave these words to the, to the writers of the Scripture, then they have to be exact because God doesn't make mistakes. And if the Bible is just a book of compilations of men's writings, then it's not a foundation for us to know that it's true in every case. Because the men that wrote it could have made mistakes. But if those men were guided by the Holy Ghost. Now that's a different animal. So the question is. Does this scripture mean exactly what it says. Or does it not. 
If it does mean exactly what it says, that means there can't be one sick person among the several millions of them that came out. Not one. What in the world would enable that to take place? Well, one explanation could be, you decide for yourself, but one explanation could be where God says, where he purifies the water, I'm the Lord that just healed you through the Passover. Because the word healeth, the word rapha, is translated healeth, healed, heal, to make whole, so forth, meaning present tense or past tense. Now, what is God saying in Exodus 15, 26? I'm the Lord that healeth thee. Is he saying I'm the Lord that has the power over sickness? No, he's saying a lot more than that. He's showing his willingness to use his power to bring healing for his people. I am the Lord that healeth thee doesn't mean I can heal you. It means I am the Lord that does heal you. And I believe that's exactly what he's saying. I'm the one that healed you in the Passover so that everybody that was sick before the Passover came out well. Oh, now, Pastor Mike, that's a stretch. How can we know? Well, I have to agree. From this scripture alone, we, well, there's no way for us to conclusively come to the real come to the to the fact the fact of the point that God healed them through the Passover. If only there was some other scriptures that told us. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter thirty. Second Chronicles chapter thirty. Hezekiah is king of Israel. Generations have passed. This is seven hundred and sixty five years after Exodus twelve where the Passover was first instituted. And Hezekiah, as the new king of Israel, decides he's going to reinstitute some of the rituals and some of the things that God told the the people of Israel to do that they've gotten away from. There have been evil kings, a string of evil kings before him. And so the Passover hasn't been kept for several generations. But Hezekiah institutes among the people, gives a commandment, we're going to start this Passover stuff again. So he gives instruction to the people. Here's what you do. Now, Hezekiah knows that everybody is, is unfamiliar with this. Nobody has the word before. Hezekiah has to, bring the, the, uh, has to get somebody to bring the scrolls to him and read this stuff and find out how to do it and, and so forth. So he knows it's not going to be right. He knows everybody's going to do it wrong, or at least a number of people will do it wrong. And he doesn't want the thing to be messed up just because the people aren't familiar with or, or really care at that point about keeping the Feast of God, the Feast of Passover. So he prays. He tells the people what to do, and he gives instruction to them about what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. But then he prays, and when the time comes and Passover takes place, he prays, and he says, Now, Lord, I know that people are doing this wrong. The Bible even says that people did it wrong. They didn't sanctify themselves. They didn't prepare themselves. They 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 didn't do it in the right way. But Hezekiah prays, and he says, Lord, don't hold this against them. I know they're messing up. I know they're not doing right, but we're trying. It'll take us a while to get this right. But don't hold it against them. Now notice Second Chronicles chapter 30 verse 20. And the Lord hearkened unto Hezekiah. And the Lord hearkened unto Hezekiah and healed the people. The Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Now let me break this down. I'm going to change the sentence structure a little bit. It's the Lord, Jehovah, that hears Hezekiah. Now, because the Lord hears Hezekiah in, in and through the Passover, read the story yourself. The whole chapter is about it. It's about the keeping of the Passover. Because the Lord hearkened unto Hezekiah, notice what the Lord did. He healed the people. 
Now, the word healed is the word rapha. So we could say it this way. We could say, God heard Hezekiah and Jehovah rapha them. The Lord healed them. Relative to the Passover, connected to the Passover, we have exactly what the Bible says, that what I believe God is identifying himself in Exodus fifteen twenty six as what he had done to the Passover that took place just a few days before. To enable the people to come forth with silver and gold and not one feeble person among them, not one sick, not one weak, not one stumbling. Everybody healed, everybody healthy, everybody strong. Everybody, not one feeble among them. Why? Because Jehovah rapha them. Now we're here in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 30 and tells us through the Passover 765 years later, Jehovah rapha them. Now, why did he do that? What was the means whereby that healing took place? The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. We have scriptural proof that healing is through the Passover or that Passover is for the healing of the physical body. Now, you don't have to accept it. And a lot of people don't. But we have scriptural evidence, scriptural proof that healing is through the Passover. Now, why was the lamb, the eating of the lamb, so important? Because Jesus said it represented his body. Why does the representation of, the, of Jesus' body through the lamb or through the bread so important? The Passover lamb with the bread of communion. Why is that so important? Because Jesus took upon himself his body, stripes, in order to bear our sicknesses and carry our diseases so that through his stripes, literally the beating that he took in Pilate's court, by his stripes, we are healed. Now, the King James, now the New Testament is written in Greek, not in Hebrew. But if it was written in Hebrew, it would be, by his stripes, we are rafed. If that's true, and it is, thank God it is. That means all of the seven redemptive names of God are fulfilled and completed in Jesus. So what is there left for us to do? The only thing that's left for us to do is receive it and accept what's done. Now, why the Passover lamb? What is magical about lamb? We have two evidences, Exodus chapter 12 and 15. And then the second evidence is Second Chronicles chapter 30. Where the eating of the lamb, the eating of the Passover lamb brought healing for the people. Healing, strength, renewal for the people. What is it about the Passover lamb? Is lamb some magical food from God? Well, other times where God fed people supernaturally or caused some supernatural benefit to take place as a result of their eating, it wasn't always the lamb. Daniel and the three Hebrew children prospered on pulse and water an oatmeal type thing in water why not lamb why didn't daniel say now now listen to the nebuchadnezzar's servant that was in charge of the the school that they were in why didn't he say now if you give us lamb we don't need this lobster and stuff because that violates the law of moses i'm glad it doesn't anymore aren't you We don't want any of the kind of stuff that you guys eat, but if you'll give us lamb, man, lamb is magic food. But he didn't. They said, you just let us have pulse and water. 
and they prospered and they were fairer and fatter and healthier than everybody else that was eating all the other stuff. What about Elijah? The Bible says that he went and God fed him by the brook, brought him. He had flesh and water twice a day. Well, what kind of flesh was it? Maybe that was lamb. Well, maybe it was. I don't know. I don't know how the ravens found it. But at any rate, God brought him meat and water in some way, some means. But then later on, when Elijah has the contest with the prophets of Baal, and he starts running from Jezebel to get away, to keep from being killed, he gets up in the mountain. The angel bakes a cake over coals. Why not lamb? And the Bible says that he went in the strength of that meal, that food, 40 days. He didn't eat for another 40 days. Man, you talk about magic food. That was magic food. But it wasn't lamb. What's the significance of the lamb? Folks, the significance of the lamb is one and only one thing, and that is it represents Jesus and the sacrifice that he made on the cross. Are you saying, Pastor Mike, that we can be healed through the Passover or through the communion today? That's exactly what the Bible is telling us. In fact, there's only one thing that the Bible says that will keep it from working. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to start in verse 23 again. Reread some of the things that we started with. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he break it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. The word broken, let's substitute the word sacrifice for you. Talking about his work on the cross. After the same manner also, he took the cup, which he has supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Please notice in the phrases connected to both the cup and the bread in remembrance of me. You're supposed to remember something about Jesus' sacrifice. Not just the fact that he went to the cross. But something that his sacrifice accomplished for us. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death. You do show the Lord's death. What death did he die? The death on the cross. You do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now, let me stop there for a minute. Where it says, eateth and drinketh unworthily, please notice who Paul is writing to. He's writing to the church. That means he's writing to Christians. What makes a Christian worthy? There's only one thing, and that's the blood of Jesus. It's the, it's the means whereby he becomes a Christian, right? So it's the blood of Jesus that makes us worthy. But now he's saying that Christians are partaking of this Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. It doesn't mean they haven't been saved. It means they're partaking in an unworthy manner. What's the unworthy manner that he's talking about? It has to be connected with their remembrance of Jesus. It has to be connected with their attitude. It has to be connected with their, their, their attention or what they focus on regarding the Lord's Supper. 
previous verses that we won't take time to read, they've turned this into a feast. They've turned it into a pig out party. So that it's not something that's sacred anymore. It's not something that's for everybody. It's not something where everybody's making sure that everybody has something to remember the Lord by. There are people that are eating and drinking and scarfing stuff down so that people are left out. In other words, they're approaching the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner with an unworthy attitude. An attitude unworthy of the blood and body of the Lord Jesus which were sacrificed for us. Which had already redeemed them and made them children of God. I guess we could use the example. Sometimes our children don't do things that are worthy of being our kids. But that doesn't stop them from being part of the family. It means it's behavior or action that needs to be straightened out. Or corrected. And that's exactly what God is trying to do through Paul by the Holy Ghost. So he's talking about their attitude toward it. So your attitude toward the communion has a lot to do with the benefits that you derive from it. Which explains to me, as you'll see in the next few verses, why there's so much sickness and disease in the church. Back to verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, not talking about the blood of Jesus not having saved them, but talking about an unworthy attitude toward the Lord's communion, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, please notice that phrase, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let that sink in for a second. Shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What's the result of that? Paul's going to tell us. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of this cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, in an unworthy manner, with an unworthy attitude, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Please notice the word damnation does not mean he's going to hell. The word damnation is the word condemnation. The Bible says if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. Why would your heart condemn you? He's talking to Christians. John's writing to Christians when he says that. Why would our heart condemn us? Because we know we're doing things that aren't right. And every time we do something that's not right, not according to the word, the Holy Ghost brings that conviction. That's the reason why a lot of people won't go to church. They get in church, they hear the word, and they get under conviction. And so what do they do? They leave and they say, well, that wasn't comfortable. I don't like that preacher because he preaches condemnation. Well, I'm not preaching condemnation. I'm telling you the word and the Holy Ghost is saying that's right. So this is condemnation. It's the knowing that you're doing something wrong. It's not talking about being sent to hell. These people can't be sent to hell because the blood of Jesus has made them children of God. There's only one thing that causes you to go to hell and that's rejecting the blood of Jesus Or literally rejecting Jesus as your personal Savior. Refusing to accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Refusing to accept his sacrifice for yourself. That's the only thing that ever causes a man to go to hell. It's not sin that sends a man to hell. It's the rejection of Jesus. So he's not talking about this person going to hell. He's talking about this person having a sense, a knowing on the inside of him that he's doing the wrong thing. Now what's the wrong thing that he's doing? He tells you in the last phrase, not discerning the Lord's body. Not discerning the Lord's body. Not recognizing that this lamb, this flesh, 
this food that they're eating as a part of the Lord's Supper, the communion, represents the sacrifice that Jesus made of his own flesh so that you could walk in divine health. Now, what's the consequence of the unworthy attitude of not discerning the Lord's body? And folks, I would submit to you that most of the church world, at least most of the church in America, takes communion whenever they do, whenever, however often their church participates in it. They take communion not discerning the Lord's body. That's where the real argument is. Did Jesus heal us when he forgave our sins? Some people will say it in a, in a more um, theologically correct term, is healing in the atonement. But it all comes down to the same things. Did Jesus pay the price for sickness when he paid the price for sin? And churches are divided on that issue. That's not the only issue that are divided on, but that's a big one. Is healing for everybody. And so you get this idea in the church, well, God can heal everybody. Folks, the devil knows God can heal. That means nothing. Well, I believe God can heal. I just don't believe he heals everybody. Well, that means Jesus didn't pay for it then. Because whatever Jesus paid for belongs to everybody. So then the question has to be asked, if healing is not because of the price that Jesus paid, how can, Jesus, how can God possibly heal anybody? Because everything that we have is through the blood of Jesus. God can do nothing, has done nothing, can do nothing for mankind except through what he made Jesus available to pay the price for. That's like saying, well, Jesus forgave our sins, but I didn't get saved through Jesus. I got saved a different way. Well, that's an idiot that's going to find himself in hell one day. There's only one way to any of the things of God, and that is through the blood of Jesus. So if Jesus did not pay the price for physical sickness, how can God possibly heal anybody? Let me refer you to a verse of scripture. I want to ask you to turn here, but I'll turn to it and read it for you. It's in uh, Romans chapter 3. I think it's verse 26. Which applies directly to this point. I'm going to back up and... Uh, well, let me start in verse 40, 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. That's how you're justified. That's how you're made righteous. Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. Propitiation is a difficult word. It literally means the lid of the, mer- the, lid of the ark. It's talking about the mercy seat. It means the place where the blood was poured to make an atonement for mankind. So it can be translated and is translated in some translations as the atoning victim. Jesus was made the atoning victim, the one who shed his blood through faith in his blood. In other words, redemption comes because of the sacrifice in Jesus through faith in that sacrifice, the blood that was shed. To declare his righteousness, please notice this, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins. To declare God's righteousness for the remission of sins. Not yours, not mine, but God's righteousness for the remission or removal of sins. That are passed through the forbearance of God for this purpose. Verse 26. To declare. God showed Jesus' blood to be righteous. Through the sacrifice on the cross for this purpose. To declare. I say at this time. His righteousness. 
that for this purpose, that he, God, might be just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. Do you know what that's saying? I know that language is difficult, so let me break it down for you. It's saying that Jesus made a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was righteous, holy blood for this purpose, to declare God's righteousness, not even Jesus's, but God's righteousness for the purpose, to the end, that God would be just to save mankind. If Jesus' blood has not, had not been without sin, God would not have been just in offering salvation for man. So there was two steps in this process. First of all, God had to declare himself or prove, to, prove himself to be righteous and just to offer salvation to mankind. That means unless God was just, salvation couldn't be real. What made God just? What declared God's righteousness or God to be a just God? The righteous blood of Jesus that was shed. Which means very simply this. Except or without God's proof that he was righteous. He himself, God was righteous. He could not have offered man any of the benefits of salvation. That would include forgiveness of sins. That would include healing for the physical body. That would include provision materially or financially or any other way. God had to be just to offer man redemption. So then if healing doesn't come by the blood of Jesus, on what basis does healing come? God would be unjust to heal except through the blood of Jesus. Are you with me on that? That's why the Passover, blood and flesh, and the elements represented in the Lord's communion represent Jesus. Now let me go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let a man examine himself, verse 28, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, talking about attitude, talking about what you believe concerning the Lord's sacrifice, eateth and drinketh condemnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, wrong attitude, wrong thinking about the sacrifice of Jesus. For this cause, Many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. One translation says, or several translations say, die prematurely. Don't live out their lives. But if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. What's he saying? He's saying there's only one thing that keeps the communion from healing the people of God. And that's a, that's a wrong attitude toward what Jesus paid the price for. That's a lack of understanding or wrong believing, wrong thinking and wrong believing about the fact that Jesus' body was broken just as much as his blood was provided. The fact that Jesus took stripes on himself to bear our infirmities and carry our sicknesses and that with his stripes... We are healed just as much as the blood that flowed when he hung on the cross. And remember, that's the Passover lamb that God said, don't leave any of it unused. Don't have any of that left over. Partake of every bit of it. And whatever you don't partake of, burn it up. Use all you can.
Now, folks, I'm here to tell you that healing miracles come through the Lord's Supper when you believe and think right. Put yourself in and in, in imagine the situation that existed in Egypt. 400 years of slavery. Slaves are not the healthiest people. They don't have the best to, to, to eat and the best to partake of. Slaves are not the healthiest people. But God brought them forth with silver and gold and not one feeble, not one weak, not one stumbling person among them, not one person overthrown with sickness, not one. Now, I don't know what the, what the percentages would be, but how many thousands of people had to get healed that night of the Passover? I mean, there were old people as well as young people that came out. God made no distinction. He didn't say, well, you're over 70, so too bad for you. Made no distinction whatsoever. They were the people of God, so it belonged to everybody. What about in Hezekiah's day, 765 years later, when Jehovah Rapha them? Does that mean he only healed headaches? Or were there people that had serious conditions then too? Well, it's hard to imagine that there wouldn't have been serious conditions among them, isn't it? How did it work? How did it happen? How did it occur? It occurred because the Lord hearkened unto Hezekiah. He heard Hezekiah. Is there any reason that God would hear Hezekiah more than he'd hear you? You've got more than he did. You're a child of God. He was a servant of God. I fully expect, based on the word of God, for healing miracles to take place in the communion today. We usually don't take the time to talk about these things and preach these things. But the fact that the Lord put it on my heart and he did it a long time ago. That he wanted it done this day. I believe you're here for a reason. If there's sickness in your body, that's going to depart from this point. Now bow your heads and let's pray for a moment. There's a prayer that we need to pray before we receive communion. Communion points to two things in the work of Jesus. First of all, the sacrifice of Jesus' blood for the sins of mankind. Secondly, his body that was offered and beaten to suffer the price for physical sickness and disease. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I can, con- I can with confidence assure you that through the partaking of this Lord's Supper, making the confession that you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, the act of faith of you partaking of this communion will bring you into the family of God without qualification, without restrictions, without any, any doubt in any form whatsoever. And I can tell you with the same confidence that if you're sick in body, with the right attitude toward Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, the same attitude that you believe Jesus died for your sins, the belief that he sacrificed himself for physical healing as well. You can be healed in body. It's the same work of faith. The same exact work of faith. Now before we partake together, I want to ask you a question. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you want to receive him as your Lord. For the first time ever. Whether you've heard it preached before or not. But you want to know that you know that you know that when this life is over, you have a home in heaven waiting for you. And until that time comes, 
You can have the life of God and the power of God and the goodness of God in you and upon you. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I just simply want to ask you to lift your hand and acknowledge before God, not before me, but before God, I'm partaking of this communion to receive my salvation. Yes, thank you. Are there others? Just by lifting your hand. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Just by lifting your hand. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. There's another. Thank you. Good. There's another in the back. Thank you. You're just acknowledging. You're just saying before the the Heavenly Father, when I partake of communion this morning, I expect to be born again. And I'll show you how. Simple thing. I'm not even going to call you to the front and send you to the prayer room. We're going to do it right where we sit, through the Lord's Supper. Are there others who would join these? If you already raised your hand, you don't need to lift it again. Are there others who would say, pray for me, Pastor Mike? I want to be included in that group to be born again this morning. Are there others? If so, just lift your hand right where you are right now. I counted eight. Eight people's lives are going to be changed. There's another. Thank you. All right. One more thing before we partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're here, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you're here this morning and you're sick in body and you would say, when I receive communion this morning as an act of faith, I will receive my healing. I want you to lift your hand. Oh, all over the room. No wonder the Lord had us go this way. All right. You can put your hand down. Father, in Jesus' name, we've acted according to your word. I preached what you told me to do. We've acted in obedience to the Holy Spirit. And I thank you, Father, for the good things that will be done during this Lord's Supper. I thank you for people's lives being changed and people being born again. I thank you for healing for each and every person. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, we know our part. It's a very simple thing just to believe. Jesus, the Bible tells us, partook of Passover with his disciples three different times. The last one, however, he said that he had looked forward with great anticipation to having the last one with them. And, of course, that was the one that he identified that the meaning of the elements, that the Passover was about him. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ is our Passover sacrifice for us. Hallelujah. Let's just stop for a moment and thank God for his goodness. Father, we thank you for healing and for forgiveness of sins. We thank you for lives being changed. I thank you, Father, for doing healing miracles in this place today. Because we act in obedience to your word. Father, we receive this bread. We declare that you are Lord of our bodies. That you took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with with your stripes, we are healed. We thank you, Father, that the partaking of this bread will bring the healing power of God. The very life of God into our flesh. And heal every part of our bodies from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. Big conditions or small conditions, Father, they're all the same to you. They're all under the curse of the law that Jesus has redeemed us from. We receive this bread in the name of Jesus. And we declare, Father, that we are healed by your stripes. Let's receive the bread.
Hallelujah. Furthermore, Lord, we thank you for this cup that represents your blood that was shed. We thank you that it represents life. For the eight that raised their hands this morning, it represents new life in you. We declare, Father, through the taking of this cup that we believe Jesus died on the cross and he was raised from the dead. And we confess him this morning as our Lord and Savior. We thank you, Father, for the remission of sins. We thank you that we're covered in the blood of Jesus, made righteous by that precious, holy blood. Let's receive the cup. Hallelujah. Would you stand together with us, please? Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Thank him because you believe him. Thank him because you believe the word. Thank you, Father, for righteousness. Thank you, Father, for healing. Thank you for miracles in our lives today. According to your word. According to your word. We bless you, Lord. We magnify your holy name. We declare you as our Savior and as our healer. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Amen, amen, amen. Hallelujah. 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 Oh, we're not done yet. Let's just praise him a little bit more. Lord, we worship you. We thank you so much for your goodness. We magnify your holy name. Great is the name of the Lord. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Your healing mercy endures forever. Your forgiveness endures forever. Oh, we bless you, Lord Jesus. Blessed be the name of 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 Jesus. Our Savior, our Healer, our Redeemer. Hallelujah. Lord of Lords and King of Kings, our soon coming King, blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed, blessed, blessed be the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless you, Lord Jesus. We are righteous by the blood of Jesus. We are healed by the blood of Jesus. We are blessed in every respect by the blood of Jesus. Blessed be the blood that has redeemed us. Blessed be the name, the name, the name, the name, the name of Jesus. 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 Jesus. Hallelujah.
Amen. 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 Lord, we bless you. We commit ourselves to live above the world, to live the very life of Jesus. For the time is short, and the hour now is to magnify and glorify the name of Jesus. For the glory of the Lord shall be seen in the earth, and the glory of the Lord shall be known from one end to the other. For these are the times for the power of God to be magnified, for the glory of God to be manifest, and the goodness of God to be seen. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed, blessed, blessed be the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 And this begins a new day. A new day for us as a church. A new day for us as believers, a new day, a day of miracles, a day of glory, where there has been a little, a few results, there shall be many, where there have been few salvations, there shall be many, where there have been a few to be filled with the Holy Spirit, there shall be many, for the time has now come. For the harvest to be brought in. So as you go through your lives. Your daily activities. Look around. And expect the Lord to reveal to you. Those who are open. Those who need Jesus. For the harvest shall come. And it shall not be a hard thing. It will be an easy thing. For the fields are white with and ripe for the harvest ready to be brought in for the time of the Lord is coming and the time is short hallelujah blessed be the name of Jesus Lord use us we open ourselves and make ourselves available to you to be used to do the work of Jesus Hallelujah. Say it with me one more time. The Lord is good. good. And his mercy endures forever. forever. Amen. 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 God bless you. Thank you for being with us.